0: started with a question, and the question was, what is spiritual conflict? And I, it's been a fantastic summer. It's been a summer that has tested me. I mean, I've been. this is one of the first opportunities I've ever had to preach into subjects like this, uh, let alone be part of it. And we asked the question, what is spiritual conflict? And we learned about the two things that God is always doing, that is saving others and setting others free, and how all spiritual conflict takes place around those two things that God is always doing. We learned that in the body of Christ, that there are some who tend to underemphasize spiritual conflict, and then there are some who overemphasize emphasize spiritual conflict, see the spiritual in everything. Uh, but whether you tend to gravitate towards one camp or the other camp, we must all realize and accept that we are in spiritual conflict, whether we like it or not, that when you are born again in Christ, you are born onto the battlefield. And the three battlefields that much of the conflict takes place is in our mind, it's in our hearts, and it's in our mouths. We've talked about spiritual authority that Christ has given to us as believers and Then the importance as well that when we use this authority that we exercise this authority with accountability biblical accountability We've examined the issues that can arise around spiritual conflict. We talked about mental health challenges and what is you know What is in natural and what is supernatural? we've looked at uh, the ways the devil wages war against God's people But more importantly, last week, we talked about how we can fight back as mighty spiritual warriors. I think that was one of my more favorite messages I've preached in a long time in overcoming our spiritual giants. So on this last Sunday, September 5th, I want to add one more final chapter to our series. And that is how important it is for you and I to maintain peak spiritual fitness. So that when the time does come, we will be ready to step in and do battle against the enemy. Speaking of fitness, you know there's been a lot of talk of fitness this morning. How many of you here in the room would describe yourself as somebody who loves fitness? You love, you're a fitness enthusiast. Anybody? Come on, get your hands up. You're a fitness enthusiast, you watch what you eat, you know, your body is a temple, you spend a lot of money going to the gym or on equipment. You, you know, you can't wait to get away from work so you can get to the gym. Now, how many of you would say that you like fitness, but what you really love to do is you love to eat? Yeah, like I think that was gonna be the majority. You watch what you eat on its way into the mouth, you know what I'm talking about? And you do it, you enjoy it, but you realize that if I had my metabolism and genetics, you know, of a 20-year-old, like, probably would do away with fitness, I'd spend my time elsewhere. How many of you have no interest at all in fitness? You're like, I could care less. You don't even know what a Peloton bike is. And you're not worried, you're forget a Fitbit, because you're not even the least bit fit, okay? Oh, like, I thank you, I know, that was good. But whether you could care less today about fitness, or you are one of those that are not, not just you know, taking the Peloton class, you're teaching the Peloton class, I think we all have an appreciation, don't we, of what an athlete does to their body when it comes to performing at the highest level. You know, we just had the Olympics, right? And I don't need to know how to do flips on a balance beam to appreciate how much fitness, how much athleticism it takes to do flips on a balance beam. You know, when those living in first century as Roman citizens, it was the exact same way as it is today. They loved their sports. They loved their athletics. And just like we do, they had athletes that were their idols, that they celebrated culturally. And so when you read the New Testament, it makes sense why there are so many times throughout the New Testament that the Christian life is conveyed to its readers through the use of athletic metaphors. You know the apostle Paul especially loved to analogize what we're doing spiritually to what an a- elite athlete does physically. You know exerting maximum effort in order to win the race, toiling and pressing onward to reach the prize. You know Paul even said in 2 Corinthians relating to his own struggles to that of a wrestling match when he said that I am pressed down, when I'm struck down but I'm not destroyed. That was actually the language of a wrestler who is thrown down into a ring but not thrown out. But there's one specific metaphor that I want to look at this morning that Paul uses that I think serves as a final reminder for where we are in the series on spiritual conflict. And that is 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 to 8. Paul says this to Timothy, "Instead, train yourself to be godly." Everybody say train. Train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and the life to come. You see, to Paul, peak spiritual fitness finds its answer in just one word, and that word is godliness. Train yourself to be godly just like an elite athlete trains their body, we as spiritual athletes, so to speak, are called to train our hearts and our souls and our minds. Because when it comes to achieving spiritual fitness, I want you to know godliness is the goal. Godliness is why we train. If we want to be at our peak spiritual fitness, we must strive for godliness. How we wrestle against cosmic powers and rulers of authorities, how we become mighty spiritual warriors, so that when the day comes that we are called on to exercise our God-given authority, is by training to be godly people here on earth. But if godliness is the goal, then what exactly is godliness? You know, when you read the New Testament, you actually don't see the word godliness appear too much actually until later on in the Gospels, into the pastoral letters like 1 Timothy and Peter and Titus. And, and some believe that this is because in that time, the word godliness was actually a word used culturally to talk about one's respect for the Greek and Roman gods. And so it was a part of their common day vernacular. They would talk about godliness, but in, in respect of these idols, these gods. And so it doesn't make its way, there was more substitute words like righteousness and holiness and steadfastness but as we get into these pastoral letters the language of godliness begins to emerge first timothy describes the gospel that we confess as the mystery of godliness and in first and second peter peter says that godliness is granted to us through the power of god and that godliness when it is when one is godly there's a distinct appearance that it produces a brotherly and sisterly love It expresses itself through holiness and steadfastness the old testament though however is a little more clear in its definition on what it means to be godly to be godly according to the old testament is to have a deep reverence for god and to live a life that pleases him i want to say that again it is to have a deep reverence for god and to live a life that pleases him being godly doesn't mean that you aren't without sin that you don't make mistakes But it's that in your reverence for His holiness, in your desire to live a life that pleases Him, there is in you, though, a deep disdain for sin. There is a holy desire in you to be set apart by God as one who is holy. You know, Psalm 4.3 says, But know this, that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself the word holiness really means to be set apart to be consecrated and this is what the psalmist is saying is that the one who is the set apart the one who lives a life of holiness is set apart by god to be as is and they are known as godly malachi chapter 2:15 says that god desires a godly offspring He's looking for children who are godly. Psalm 12, the psalmist, he is crying out to God to save his people. Why? Because the godly have disappeared, he said in Psalm 12. The godly are gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. I think what godliness is most of all is the desire to be the sort of person whom God desires. Can I get an amen? To be a people who desire to be the sort of person whom God desires. But no matter how much you and I desire to be godly, desire alone, how many of you know, is never enough. You know, I can desire to lose 20 pounds. I can desire to start that new business. I can desire to quit that bad habit. But notice that desire alone is never enough to have godliness. In the same breath, godliness cannot be earned or achieved by our merit. You know, our good works and our, the sum of our striving does not equate godliness, but rather the godliness is the process that God, only God can do as we faithfully follow Him in obedience and love. Our training to be godly happens by becoming all who God has called us to be. That in God's word, there are times, there are places where God says, be this. And to be godly then is to become that. God says to be courageous. And so what? We train ourselves to become courageous. You know, God says to be holy as I am holy. And so to train ourselves for godliness is then to become holy. God says to be still, be not afraid, be strong in the Lord. And so as we train ourselves, we are training ourselves to become And when God calls us to be this or to be that, know that he's not making a suggestion nor is he giving good advice. These are commands which show us, you and I, how to be the sort of people whom God desires. Not only that, God says, when he says, be strong and be holy, he is not saying this as sort of moving the goalpost, so to speak, for you and I, that when we achieve a certain point, he says, no, 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 come a little bit further. No, God says, be holy as I am holy, because he knows, he believes that in Christ, you now can be holy that you can be strong in the Lord, that you are able to not be afraid. Why? Because you're not just made in the image of God, that through Christ you, you now can reflect the image of God, the God who is strong and a God who is holy. That image now can be reflected in you in Jesus' name. So to be spiritually fit and ready, godliness is the goal. We are training ourselves in the power of Christ to be a sort of people who God desires and has set apart as a godly offspring. But if godliness is the goal when it comes to spiritual fitness, there's one other thing that I want to say this morning when it comes to our training. And I think what I'm about to say, if I were to use a sort of spiritual or sort of spiritual metaphor or to make an analogy, it's sort of the equivalent of what a trainer might say to you if you enlisted a personal trainer say you want to get in shape and the trainer he kind of creates a plan for you right he says this is what you're going to do this is how you're going to do it and he observes and let's just say that you put this plan into action and you begin to work out and you begin to exercise and you're working hard and you're making progress but over time suddenly you see there's no change on the scale Now what a good personal trainer will do is rather than increase the, you know, the the frequency and the intensity of your workout, your trainer might go a different route and ask you this question that nobody wants to hear. Does anybody know what that question is? How has your eating been? Can we have a look at your diet? You know, you're working hard, you're training hard, you're exercising, but things aren't moving on the scale. So let's have a look at what you're eating. And as someone who is speaking from experience, I know that I'm not alone, okay, that's why I say it, I will gladly exercise for hours if it means that I can continue to eat my Miss Vicky spicy dill pickle chips from Costco that I love so dearly. How many of you agree? But it has been proven that when it comes to staying fit, so the experts say, I'm not an expert, okay? that only 20% of being uh, being fit happens through our exercise, and 80% of what it means to be fit comes through our diet. You know, I got a a picture up there for you. I just Googled it. I used to read these magazines, these fitness magazines, and they'd always show these things that if you ate, you know, this, pigs in a blanket, how many of you love pigs in a blanket, you're looking at doing a lot of exercise, okay? You eat one cookie, this is how long you're going to be doing this, you know? (laughs) And it makes me ask the question, thanks Eduardo for showing that, sorry about that. When it comes to training for godliness, could there be a spiritual equivalent when it comes to the complicated and painful relationship we have with our diet and exercise? That training for godliness is not just exercising our inner being, but it is also, could it include, the careful examination of what we are putting into our inner being. See where I'm going with this? just as jesus the perfect expression of godliness trains you and i how to be godly in his strength he also says this in titus two twelve. he says he, jesus training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age see if godliness is the goal if that is who we are becoming in christ worldliness or ungodliness as it can be said is what we are renouncing it is all the things that we are saying no to in christ because when it comes to godliness what we don't do out of reverence for god's holiness might just be as significant as what we do do for christ and out of reverence for his holiness and i know historically we the church have struggled when it has come to understanding what we, how to, re- the best practices for how to renounce the worldliness that wants to exist in us. You know, as somebody who grew up in the 90s, and I know that even those who grew up in the 80s too, a little bit older than me, can say they struggled with this as kids. Growing up as a Christian in the 90s, you know, we were inundated with what you can do and what you can't do. And at that time, it was media. Sort of media was sort of the list of what worldliness was, and there was a big movement to get the TV out of the house. You might remember that if you were around in the '90s. Now, as somebody who's a little bit older now, who has kids, I can see the value of saying, you know, get the TV out of your house. But it was sort of the the end-all, be-all: just get the TV out of your house, and you've renounced worldliness. Burn the Harry Potter books, and you have renounced holiness. And and I think the church struggled, and a lot of people, you know, really were shipwrecked in their faith because they just couldn't live up to this list of what it means to renounce hol, to renounce worldliness. You now, on the flip side. You know, what you might see is today, I think the pendulum has swung so far the other way that there's almost no distinction for what a Christian does or doesn't do versus someone in the world and what they do and what they don't do. What we watch, what we say, where we go... But when one goes deeper in reverence for God, when one, you know, deep dives and says, I'm going to give God my everything, I'm going to live a life that pleases Him, I think what happens is that they become more sensitive for what the Spirit is convicting them. I think the answer comes down to the Spirit conviction at work in your life. You might be thinking, well, what I do, what I watch, I'm not being convicted. Well, I think, too, that there's, we have to recognize that the, the voice that convicts us is that when we allow worldliness to exist in us, it sort of numbs the voice of the Holy Spirit in us. We sort of become desensitized to the Holy Spirit, and so just because you aren't hearing conviction doesn't mean the Spirit is not wanting to convict you, and that is why we must train ourselves for godliness. What we must realize today is that worldliness is, a, is are the diet that our culture feasts on every, each and every single day. The worldliness is an all-you-can-eat buffet, and the world is inviting the church, come sit at our table. There's more than enough room for you here. There's more than enough room. It is a diet that intentionally ignores God's truth in order to pursue the desires of our flesh. Worldliness is nothing less than idolatry and idolatry. Displayed in all its ignorance And as much as the world exists out there we the church must realize that the world wants to exist in here Doesn't it how many of you know that pain that that to be true the world wants to exist in here? And one of Satan's greatest lies one of his greatest schemes is that is the lie that godliness and worldliness can coexist peacefully inside your spirits you know, it's sort of the equivalent of working out for an hour and then looking at those cookies and thinking, well, I can go eat five cookies after I worked out. Or, if you can indulge my nerdiness for a moment, any Avengers fans out there? Anyone like the Avengers? Like Thor, the god of thunder in the movie Endgame? This chiseled god of thunder, this warrior. How they, when the world is is needing to be saved, they go find Thor, but where they, when they find him, they find that he is... Fat and out of shape. i was <laughs> so proud of that picture today, that I, that this week that I found. This is what worldliness and godliness looks like. You bear the image of God. Thor is still a god, even though he's fat. But the, the, the diet that he is consuming, the lifestyle that he is partaking in, while he is still who he is, he is rendered ineffective and weak. This is the enemy's plan for you and I, right there. (laughs) Train yourself for godliness without any attempt whatsoever to renounce the worldliness that gives way to the passions of our flesh. You can take that picture, thank you. (laughs) The enemy desires this for you and I that we would be spiritually fat and out of shape. But here's what God desires a godly offspring, a godly offspring, a holy people he has set apart for himself. And so today, as we are about to close here shortly, I'll allow me to ask you a few questions. Would you just indulge me in allowing me to be the sort of personal trainer, so to speak, when it comes to spiritual fitness? Number one, how is your spiritual fitness right now? How are you doing? Are you at peak shape? Or is it time in September to maybe do a New Year's resolution? how you doing spiritually speaking when it comes to your fitness number two how has your training plan been you know you might be new to the faith and you might be thinking to yourself i don't even know where to begin you know i have the desire i love god i have a reverence i want to learn but i just don't know how i don't know the motions what what does it look like to train here's a few things to consider training requires desire right like, desire alone is not enough, but how many of you know that you need desire in order to get up off your butt and do something? That doesn't discount the importance of desire. Is there a desire in you to deepen your reverence for God? Is there a desire in you to live a life of holiness? You know, I, while training is not desire alone, training begins with a desire. Number two, training requires discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 25-27, to 27, again, Paul uses another athletic metaphor. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wealth, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, are things under control? Are you practicing self-control in all things? Is your witness... Are you living in such a way that who you are inwardly is who you might say and, and show publicly? Training requires discipline. Training also requires having a plan. And I think that's one of the reasons why HeartStrong has been such a success. And I would encourage you, if you didn't check out HeartStrong this year, check it out next spring. Because what it does best is it gives you a plan. And there's something amazing that when we're given a plan, we can put the plan to work. Maybe that's the small group for you this next Tuesday, 6, 6.30, 6.15? right here. Start right that. I'll see you there, disciples of the rock. Training requires consistency and constancy. You know, God, He is the one who created time. And He has called His Christians to observe the time that He's put before us. That is six days we are called to labor. And on the seventh, we are called to what? To rest. How many more good training plan needs rest? Training for godliness Sometimes we just need to stop and allow God to do what only God can do, and to rest in Him. Number three, how is your spiritual diet? There it is. Just like the food you consume has an effect on your physical body, what effect is your diet having on your spiritual body? What are you consuming? What are you looking at? What are you, where are you going? What are you doing? You know, We need to cultivate a sensitivity to the Spirit's work of conviction. Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will come to convict the world in regards to sin. If it's been a long time since you felt convicted of anything, I don't think it means that you've achieved peak holiness. (laughs) I think maybe it's time to look and and look at the Spirit's voice in your life. I think that we can fine-tune the conviction through prayer, through accountability, through confession, things like that. And just be, just remember, in the same way that when it comes to, to working on our diet, it's not just about eliminating all the bad stuff, right? Getting rid of the junk food, that's a big part of it. But it's what are we putting into our body then to replace that junk food? If we're going to stop doing that, what are we going to start doing? You know, what sort of godly diet can we, to, we begin to add to eliminate the junk cravings of this world? For and finally, I'll close with this. What is God calling you to renounce? In regards to his goal of godliness for your life what is he calling you to renounce what does it mean to renounce i think it means two things and they're sort of the same thing but a little bit different one i think it needs to we need to repent repentance this is repentance right here that was a public act of repentance repentance is expressing to god the sorrow of your sin your regret for the life that you once lived for the things that you've done before God but at the same time repentance is not just saying God I'm so 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 sorry it is recommitting ourselves to turn around that is literally what the word means to do a 180 and to go a different way than the way that which you came from that is what it means to repent second Corinthians seven ten says godly sorrow it brings repentance a godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret But worldly sorrow brings death. What is it that you need to repent of today? To express to God, to turn around. Secondly, confession. So like repentance, it is a similar in that we are confessing our wrongdoings. But I think where confession differs from repentance is that repentance is always personal and sometimes confession is personal. But I believe, and this goes totally against our Canadian values and who we are as a Western people, confession must not only be personal. We are called to confess our sins to God, but also to one another so that we can be prayed for and that we may be healed. Confession needs to be developed as a spiritual discipline. It shouldn't be something we only do when we feel guilty or we feel bad. I encourage you to make confession part of your disciplines of, of, of training for godliness. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen says, whoever conceals their sins, they don't prosper, but one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy would you stand to your feet these are just but a few steps that we can take to train ourselves for godliness physical training is good that should come as a relief to those of you who don't love training and a reminder maybe a rebuke to those who are obsessed with physical training and only physical training but spiritual training training for godliness has benefits for this life and the life to come. So let's pray. Lord, what a summer it's been, God. (laughs) Lord, to dive into these subjects, to be tested, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be convicted. Lord, we are in spiritual battle. Lord, and I just pray you give us the eyes to see where is the fight and where's not the fight. And give us ears to hear, how to engage, and how not to engage. And Lord, I pray that this theme of spiritual conflict would not just be something that stops now, but I pray that it would be interwoven in all of our discipleship. God, we are so sick and tired of seeing the enemy run rampant in this day, in this culture, in this world, even among our, our children, our youth. And we're saying enough in Jesus' name. When we say enough, And we say, now is the day. We're going to mark September 5th as a day where we are going to mark this territory. We say, no more territory, we're going to give up. And God, we're going to begin advancing against the enemy in Jesus' name. Lord, over our city, over this church, over our young people, over this nation, oh God, we need revival in this nation. Our politics are not enough to save us in this present moment. It is God and God alone Lord, God, keep this land, the land, Lord, that we have so been freely given, Lord. Lord, keep this land. Heal this land. Renew this land. Remake this land, I pray. Transform this land. And so, Lord, I pray as we go, Lord, we would just be convicted today by the Spirit, Lord, to all of us, just re- Repent today if there's anything that inside of us that has made us like that picture. I hope that picture <laughs> stays in our minds today, Lord. and is a reminder, Lord, of who we are, Lord, in you. But who, what happens, Lord, when we allow worldliness to live within us? God, we renounce worldliness. We renounce it, Lord. We repent of it. Lord, we want to practice confessing the, the times where worldliness comes in us. Lord, and we want to put the goal of godliness ever before us. Jesus, show us how. Jesus, encourage us. Jesus, convict us. Jesus, guide us as we train ourselves for godliness. God, we thank you for all the wonderful things that you've done and for what you are going to do. You are good. Your promises endure forever and ever. Faithful as we sang this morning, you are faithful, you will be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, before you leave today, there's your, I just want to leave you with our prayer focus, our last prayer focus for the summer. And we're going to pray for every young person in our lives, in our neighborhoods. We're going to pray over the schools and the homes in our area for a fresh fire of the Holy Spirit to fall and to bring a revival that touches the next generation through prayer, scripture, fellowship, praying in the Spirit. Lord, build your house and start with us. That's the theme for this coming ministry year. Unless the Lord builds his house... The workers work in vain, get ready. That's what you're gonna hear this next year. It's time to rebuild the Lord's house, but unless he builds it, all of our work, it's in vain. All the renovations, all the stuff that we're it's in vain unless the Lord builds his house. So the scripture is 1 Timothy 4, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example, and you are setting the example for the believers, young people in love and conduct and faith and purity. Persist in this, and by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers, Paul says to young Timothy, who was kind of like 40 years old at that time, so he wasn't really that young. So anyone out the age of 40, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, all right? You're young. Have a great day, and uh, God bless. We'll see you September 12th. Life Kids Junior High opens up next week, full service. It's gonna be awesome. See you then.